you have your Bibles with you today, open up to the Gospel of Luke, not John, but Luke, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. So last Sunday, after the fire, and after we had Summerfest, yes, we still had it, even though it was a little smoky out there. We're grateful that the Lord uh, saw fit to allow us to still meet together. Uh, we had a great night, and then I jumped on a red-eye plane to Louisville, Kentucky, where I've been all week preaching at a youth camp called D3. And it's able to be there along with uh, Shannon Hurley, one of our missionaries, who will be here at the end of the month, and also with Dan Dumas. I just had a fabulous week on preaching about standing firm in the gospel of Christ, standing firm in holiness and in uh, the shield of faith, and just all kind of uh, different um, topics there about standing firm. I had a fantastic week, and I'm uh, grateful to be back with you um, today. So I didn't, I didn't prepare a brand new sermon out of the next text of John. Instead, I, I've been wanting to share with you this sermon from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and uh, we're talking about today the parable of the persistent widow. If you'll remember, the Gospel of John, where we're studying verse by verse, doesn't have any parables in it, so I thought it might be appropriate to kind of insert from time to time one of the parables from the synoptics that we could look at and be encouraged as we're uh, studying the Gospels uh, together. So here we are, Luke chapter 18. This morning we're going to look at the parable of the persistent widow, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read in Luke chapter 18 this morning, this story about the persistent widow. And as we tackle this parable today, and we think about the subject of prayer, and the idea of coming before you with all of our prayers and all our requests, God, I pray that you would encourage us today and challenge us today that you're a God who longs to hear our prayers, to answer them in accordance with your word and with your will. And so God bless this time. Help encourage us today as we look at this parable. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, a father had just put his young daughter to bed. He settled himself down in the living room when she called out from her bed, Daddy, will you please bring me some milk? No, Sally, said her dad. You've already had your milk. A few minutes later, she called out again, Daddy, I want some milk, please. No, Sally, said her father. I'm busy now. Go to sleep and don't call me again. Her father thought that that would settle the matter. However, two minutes later, Sally called out again, Daddy, please bring me some milk. Now listen, Sally, said her father, if you aren't quiet, I'm going to come in there and give you a smack. 
There was a short silence. Then Sally called out, Daddy, when, when you come in here to give me a smack, will you please bring me some milk? <laughs> we can all relate a little bit to the persistence of a child asking for milk or a cup of water, especially at bedtime, right? We can all relate to that. When a, when a child really gets their mind fixed on something that they want or something they think that they need, oftentimes they can be relentless about asking a parent for just that. And sometimes they won't stop until they get what they want. Well, persistence can be a positive or a negative quality depending on what is being persisted upon and the motive of the one persisting. Persistence is particularly an admirable quality and even a commanded action to take place when the Bible talks about it in the context of prayer. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. The Bible says to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The Bible says do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And so without humble, trusting, persistent prayer, you could be disobeying God's clear command that we're to be praying all the time about all kinds of things. Prayer is not a one-time event. Prayer is not a a pray once uh, type thing and then give it over to God and and let Him deal with it uh, like He wants. The idea behind prayer is that we keep praying, we keep requesting, we keep asking, and we never give up. Prayer is about touching the heart of God. Prayer is about a faith that is firmly rooted in God's goodness. Prayer is about a deep-seated trust in God's promises. Prayer is about putting God's Word to the test and to practice it in our lives. Prayer shows our dependence on God. Prayer shows our need for God. Prayer shows our reliance on God's wisdom, on God's power, and on God's ability to intervene at any point in time. Well, this morning, we should be very encouraged because this parable in Luke tells us that we ought to to pray and not lose heart because of our great God, because of His character and His love and His desire to connect with His people, we ought to be praying more often and more regularly. Why? Because God is kind. God is just. God is gracious. God is able to do more than we could ever ask for or imagine. And as we look at the story of the persistent widow this morning, I want to just give you three headings about this idea of persistent prayer. Okay, in order to do that, let's look here, verse 1, and we see our first heading. If you have an outline there in your bulletin, you'll see what I'm talking about. But we're talking about the purpose of the parable, the purpose of this parable. And the first blank, again, if you are taking notes, would just be this, the specific context of the second coming, the specific context context of the second coming. I know we're kind of diving in here to the uh, Luke chapter 18, and you may not be familiar with the flow of Luke. And so when he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, the context has to do with the second coming. In fact, our text this morning is found in a vital section of the gospel of Luke where Jesus is teaching the multitudes on his journey to Jerusalem. In the very next chapter, chapter 19 of Luke, is where the Passion Week begins. And so needless to say, there are important words 
that Jesus is giving to his audience just before he enters into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. Chapters 15 and 16 of Luke are full of parables. And in chapter 17, we would have studied just about how Jesus gives a lesson on forgiveness, a lesson on faithfulness, a lesson on thankfulness. And at the end of 17, right before we get to our text today, Jesus teaches a lesson about readiness. And it is this last lesson, this lesson on readiness, or be ready for the second coming that interests me the most as we look at this immediate context. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 17, let's say, let's say verse 33 and following, here's what we read. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that that night, uh, I tell you in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other one left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Now that's the end of chapter 17. And basically what he's saying there is when we read those texts, we know it has something to do with eschatology, has something to do with end times, has something to do with the return of Christ. And what I'm saying to you is that these verses at the end of verse 17, setting the context for this parable about the persistent widow, are talking about the second coming. The context would be about the second coming. And the second coming actually is not all good news. It's not all good news for those who are unrepentant and those who have rebelled against God. In fact, when it says that one will be taken, that doesn't mean taken up into heaven. Rather, that means taken into judgment, that one will be taken and will be judged. Now, before the second coming, many people believe in what's called the rapture or the idea of Christ uh, coming in the air and believers meeting him in the air, but Christ doesn't actually descend upon the earth. And we read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So I'm not trying to get too lost here in end time study, but I'm just saying that there is seen by many a difference between the rapture, where the church goes to meet Jesus in the air, and a difference between the second coming, where Christ comes back all the way to earth. If you do believe in the rapture, the rapture of a church, then it would be at that time when you go to be with Christ in the air that we read about the Bema seat, when you will give an account for the life that you lived on earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And while this is happening in heaven, the earth will then be undergoing the outpouring of the wrath of God and a seven-year tribulation. And it's at this time that God will graciously spare a remnant of his elect who were saved during that tribulation. And as the tribulation comes to its end, God's full wrath will be poured out in a series of seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls on those who did not repent and believe. That's what Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. At the end of those days, 
the end of the tribulation, is when the second coming will happen. It's when Christ comes back. And he tells us in the book of Acts, the angels that saw him ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives say, look, he's coming back just like he went up. And in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, the prophecy is given that on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. We also read about the second coming in the book of Revelation, that his appearing will bring death and devastation to the unbelievers at the battle that is sometimes called Armageddon. And in Revelation chapter 19, talks about how John says, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a, a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with it, the false prophet who is in its presence and had done the signs which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown down alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's pretty serious, right? We're talking about the rapture, which is not included in this context, or we're talking about the second coming, which is included in this context, talking about what's going to happen when Christ comes back, and what should we be doing in the meantime between now, today, and when Christ returns. And this immediate context is where we find this story of the persistent widow, and it's significant to realize that the parable of the persistent widow is placed in this a time again of the second coming, which comes right after the great tribulation, and this helps us to realize how important it is for us to do two things, for us to pray regularly and for us to pray urgently. Because the idea is he's coming back at any moment. It's coming, it could happen at any time. So we need to be praying urgently and we need to pray, be praying faithfully with the idea that while the future is up to God, this parable is saying, in the meantime, don't give up on prayer. Let me move on to the second sub-point here, now that you kind of got the context in mind a little bit. Let's look at just the simple utilization, that's your next blank, the utilization of a parable. Why does Christ even employ parables to teach us about these things? Well, you may remember that a parable is a story taken from everyday life that explains and illustrates a spiritual truth. The idea is a parable comes alongside us and allows us to relate and say, I can relate to a story like that. That sounds kind of like a real-life event. In fact, I've been in a situation like that. 
So Jesus tells us these inspired stories so that he can uh, kind of relate to those that he wants to relate with. And in fact, when the disciples asked Jesus, why is it you speak in parables? His answer was this. Mark chapter 4, verse 9, he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, what in the world does that mean? It sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm giving the parables to you who are believers so you can see and understand, but I'm also giving the parables to unbelievers so they can't see and they can't understand. In fact, you could summarize it this way. I would say what Jesus is saying is the purpose of parables are twofold. Number one, to reveal truth to believers. And number two, to conceal truth from unbelievers. What Jesus is desiring to do is to reveal his truth through the parable to those who would repent and believe and have their minds affected by sovereign grace through the divine truth of the parables that he teaches. At the same time, he's in a way concealing truth from those who can't see, who can't understand, which means they're stuck in their sin, they're unrepentant, they have hard hearts, and in a sense the parables condemn unbelief. So the question should be asked, well, what truth is Jesus revealing to his disciples and to us in this passage? And I would say that he's revealing to them, again, about the importance of urgency and constant prayer. There's an obvious link between chapter 17 and chapter 18, as we've just discussed. And so with the view of the second coming of Christ, every true believer should be ready by persevering in prayer. And during the lengthy and increasingly difficult period of time before Christ returns, his followers down through the ages should persevere in prayer. And that's what we see here in your next blank, just saying the same thing. There's a twofold purpose in this parable, the necessity and the, and, and, uh, of prayer and not growing weary in prayer. Because that's what tends to happen, right? We, we tend to think, well, well, the second coming isn't coming for a long time. And you've already said that you think there's got to be a rapture and a seven-year tribulation even before that. So why should we keep praying so much when does our, you know, does our prayers really make a difference? And what I would say is that what this parable is doing is saying in light of the second coming, we know it's coming eventually, in light of that, we need to be a people who will be diligent to pray. And the parable of the persistent widow teaches us the importance of prayer, that your prayers make a difference, that your prayers make a change in what happens. Now, that's all still tied to the sovereignty of God. Right? I'm not saying that you move heaven and earth single-handedly, but at the same time, we're invited to pray. God hears our prayers, and he answers our prayers when they're prayed in accordance with his will. And so this whole parable is about the urgency of prayer and just establishing the fact you need to pray and you need to be persistent and never give up. The next parable, which we're not going to get to, but in its context, is the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And that parable would be more about teaching us how to pray. So this parable is teaching us, you better pray and don't give up. The next parable, which we'll not be looking at this morning, is said, this is how you pray. You don't pray like a prideful Pharisee. You pray like a humble sinner, okay? So the Bible is full of passages of Scripture on prayer. And many of these passages teach us that not only does God hear our prayers, 
but he answers them as well. Uh, jot down some of these references if you want, if you just want to uh, uh, kind of uh, look through this a little bit more in detail later. But James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we know the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Jot down Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. Matthew chapter 21, verses 22 says, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So what we're saying here is simply this. Our God is a God who loves prayer. Our God is a God who invites us to pray, commands us to pray. He delights in our prayer. He answers our prayer. He calls us to be faithful in prayer. And so here in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, we see that Jesus is giving two simple reminders to every single person that we ought to always pray and we ought to not lose heart. That's what verse 1 is all about. You ought to always be praying. It says you ought always to pray and you ought not to lose heart. And so when Jesus says we ought to always pray, he means it is a necessity. In light of the fact that he's coming back, we have a responsibility to be praying. In fact, the idea of him coming back in prayer work together so often through the Bible, like in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the idea of Jesus coming back and prayer go hand in hand. And so the question might be asked, well, why is it that so many times in our lives as Christians, we don't, we don't do these simple things? We don't, we don't pray uh, consistently, and oftentimes we lose heart. We don't pray consistently. We often lose heart. Why, why don't we pray at all times? Do, do you come immediately before the throne of grace when you have a need, or do you complain about it or try to fix the problem yourself, thinking that it's just a physical problem and you can fix it without any spiritual help? Uh, not, not only do we need to pray at all times, but we need to pray without losing heart. And that expression about losing heart means giving up from exhaustion. So a lot of times we quit praying because we just give up, we're exhausted, we feel like we prayed about it once, we prayed about it twice, we prayed about it for months or years, and we finally just give up. That term, losing heart, can also be translated turning coward. You'd be like, hey, don't turn coward, don't, don't doubt the power of God, don't, don't get out of the fight, continue the fight. In fact, here in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, is the only place that this word, losing heart, is found in the four Gospels. The word is used by the Apostle Paul five times, some of them you're aware of, when it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, where it says um, that we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Or maybe you're familiar with that word, not losing heart, out of Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good. Same idea that we don't lose heart. Don't grow weary of doing good. Ephesians 3, 13. So I ask you, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13 says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is teaching this parable that we would pray consistently, pray faithfully, pray energetically. So let me just pause and ask you, how many of you guys in here this morning, you believe prayer works? You're like, man, I believe in prayer. I believe in the power of prayer. Raise your hand real high. You're like, man, I believe prayer works. Now, you guys seem kind of, you know, a little bit shy about that. You're like, I don't know. Do you think prayer works? Do you? All right. All right. We're Christians, right? This morning, if we believe prayer works. How many of you have seen God work in amazing ways in your life through prayer? Like, I've seen it. I've seen the power of prayer work, okay? How many of you guys believe that God still answers prayer? You're like, I think he's still in the business of answering. I'm not a charismatic, maybe, but I believe God answers prayers every day. How many of you are charismatic? No, I'm just kidding. All right, so, you know, the idea is that, here's the question, then why in the world do we still struggle with the fact that we're not praying regularly and consistently, and we lose heart? I'll be the first to confess, I lose heart like this. You know, you pray for something, you get all excited about it, and you have a burden about it, and you pray for a day, and you pray for two days and three days, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm tired of praying about this. I don't see anything changing, and I'm getting a little frustrated. Doesn't God hear my prayer? Well, this is the whole point of this parable. So let's take a, a, a closer look now to answer some of those questions now that we're getting right into here's the parable, and the first character here in this parable is, your next blank there, the judge. We're talking here about the judge. So in verses 2 through 6, you've heard the parable. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And what Jesus does here is he links the judge with a certain city because this is how the legal court of the day was set up. This is how a judge was expected to function. And today we have certain districts that are broken up into certain courts that are mainly based in our geographical location. And it's the same way for this judge. Now this particular judge is a bad man. He is is a non-believer. And by his own admission, he's anti-God and he's anti-man. He did neither fear God or respect man. This is a bad dude, right? And this judge here says himself, this isn't what is being told about the judge. The judge says in his own quote in verse 4, he says, I neither fear God nor respect man. And this means that this judge lived in defiance against both the first and the second commandment. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this judge is saying, I'm going totally against God. Not only am I an atheist, I hate God and I hate man. He basically did with whatever he wanted with no regard to God or man. He was his own boss. He was his own authority to himself. He listened to no one. He was his own evil villain. He submitted to no higher order. He was prideful. He was egotistical. He was grandiose. He was too big for his britches. He was ungrateful. He was a wicked, corrupt, and self-centered judge. The judge in this parable is acting in complete contradiction to how the judges in Israel were supposed to function. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of law and a lot of Bible given to what a judge should do. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16, Moses wrote, And I charged your judges at the time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Furthermore, Moses says, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone 
for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And so Moses had already said the culture of Jerusalem was to be run by certain judges who would hear everybody's case, everybody's plea, and judge rightly before God. A second passage that addresses the responsibility of judges is 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Here we read, and it says, Consider what you do. This is written to the judges. Consider what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So this is what the culture was supposed to be. They were supposed to have faithful, just judges. Well, this judge in the parable, remember Jesus is in Israel. He's talking to Hebrew people. This is what it would have been expected of a judge, for a judge to kind of walk in this way, and, and, and basically a fear of God, and at least a general respect for man is essential for any good and admirable judge, and a judge with no fear of God recognizes, uh, no, you, know, you know, who doesn't recognize any type of universal ethic uh, for civil cases outside of his own interest is a wicked judge, and this judge has no respect for the God who created the heavens and the earth. This judge is, is unaware that it is God who gave him his very life, and this responsibility. And this judge did not believe that he would ever be judged by God or be held to the standard of God's word. And not only this, but this judge had no appreciation for man. Even history's worst, worst enemies, as evil as they were, let's say Hitler or Stalin, professed that they had a love for humanity. Now, they were selective in the types of humanity they loved, but none of those guys ever said they hated all God, all men, together. This judge is an anomaly. It doesn't get any worse than this particular judge. And so now that we've seen a little bit about his character, let's look at the only other character in the parable, which is the widow. The widow. And we read about her starting in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Luke actually mentions widows more than all the other gospel writers combined. Luke writes about widows, and it would have been an incredibly hard time, particularly in the first century, for a widow to care for herself. God had instructed his people to take special care of widows. Exodus chapter 22, Moses wrote again, "'You shall not mistreat any widows.'" He writes again in Exodus twenty two twenty four because if you do, my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows. Exodus is pretty serious about not neglecting widows. How about Psalm chapter 146 verse 9 says, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. How about Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17? Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 7 verse 6, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, I will bless you. Acts chapter 6 in the New Testament also talks about the importance of taking care of widows. Acts chapter 6 verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily 
distribution. And Acts chapter 6 goes on to talk about that's when the office of deacon was created to do just that, to serve tables and help do a better job taking care of widows. How about 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 3? Honor who? Widows who are truly widows. How about true religion? James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What we're simply saying is this. God has made it clear that widows were to be loved and cared for. And life had dealt this woman in this parable a devastating blow. She had at least three strikes against her in this culture. She was a woman... Women were not even allowed to bring their case into court. They were supposed to be represented by a man, and apparently she had no man to present her case to this judge. So she's a woman. Number two, she's a widow, which means she was, she was probably poor, which is number three. So she's a woman, she's a widow, and she's poor, which means she wasn't respected so much as being a widow. She's not a lady of status, and neither does she have any means to bribe the judge in order that he would respect her plea. And so she most likely had the feeling of being abandoned, the feeling of frustration, and the feeling of loneliness. Sound familiar to any of you as Christians? That sometimes you feel abandoned, you feel frustrated, and you feel lonely in the midst of your plight. And just as Naomi had become bitter in the first chapter of the book of Ruth when she returned, this widow feels bitter as well. It was Naomi who said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And it's possible this woman felt the same way. Now, obviously, again, the parable I'm talking about them is if they're real people and we can't overanalyze their character because it could, it's just a story, right? But there are some things that would have been going on, I think, in the Hebrew mindset when Jesus is telling the story about a judge and about a widow. And widows are among the most defenseless people in the Hebrew society. The Old Testament refers to widows as being oppressed and taken advantage of. Uh, they often uh, also suffered as legal victims, and such is the case with this poor widow in this parable. And it's likely that this widow is like one of those that Luke later describes as, as one who men devour their houses. Whenever a widow would become a widow, the men would step in and try to take all of her inheritance. And so let's bring it home now and look at your next blank there. What's the situation? What's the situation that we're talking about? Well, this woman is coming to the judge and she's pleading for help, right? And verse 4 says, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, here's the situation. There is obviously a legal case going on where this widow has been taken advantage of. And someone may have deprived her of the little bit that she had. Or maybe someone was trying to prevent her from receiving that to which she was entitled. This widow is in desperate need of help. And the legal system was her only hope to vindicate her name, to clear her case, to maintain her dignity. And so she does the only thing she can. She goes to the judge hoping that somehow if he's a God-fearing judge, the law will render itself and justice will be served. He's hoping, she's hoping that he'll just listen to her and give her whatever justice commanded. And so she kept coming to the judge saying, give me justice against my adversary or give me legal protection from my opponent. And the emphasis here is on the urgency and the constancy of her request. The Bible says she just what? Kept coming. 
like the rains keep coming in a tropical rainforest, like the stars keep shining at night, like the waves keep coming upon the shore, this widow kept coming to the judge. She would not give up. Despite discouragement, despite deflection, despite the disintegration of justice, this woman remained steadfast in her cause. And for a while, the judge was unwilling, but in time, he gave in. And even though he did not respect God or man, but because of this widow's persistence, he gave in. Because the widow kept bothering him, because he was sick and tired, because he was totally worn out, the judge gave her legal protection. Now the clause in verse 5 says, this is the exact reason why he finally gave her the answer that she needed. He says, so that she will not beat me down. Right? Literally translated, that could be translated as so that she will not blacken my eye, so that she will not hit me again under the eye. The term is a boxing term, to beat down or to wear out or to strike somebody with a full blow in the face. Paul uses it that way in 1 Corinthians 9, 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Same term. It's a boxing term. Just as a tenacious boxer is known for continual blows to the opponent to weaken him or wear him down. So this widow continued to persist. She kept coming. She had more stamina than Muhammad Ali. Now, she was tougher than Mike Tyson. She had more power than Evander Holyfield. She was more persistent than Floyd Mayweather. She was a heavyweight boxing match that she's involved in with the judge, and she won. This story was the underdog winning the big match. This wasn't supposed to happen. This was more incredible than Rocky Balboa beating Apollo Creed, Mr. T, or the Russian. Rocky, Rocky. I mean, the idea is this woman fought the law, and she won. God gave this woman victory. That's what happens in the story. So now let's move to the final heading here. What's the point of all this? What's the point of this parable? Verses 7 and 8, we read this. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? All right, your next blank says this. If the unrighteous judge, here's the whole point, I think you see it, but let me just state it clearly. If the unrighteous judge answered this widow's request, how much more, that's your blank, how much more will God, the righteous judge, answer our request? If this hateful judge who despises God and disregards man is going to eventually give in and give this woman what she wants, how much more will God, the righteous judge, answer our request. Now first, let me just clarify a couple of observations about what the parable is not saying. This parable is not teaching that God is both unwilling and reluctant to hear our prayer. Okay, this judge didn't want to hear the woman, kept putting her off, and that is not true of the character of God. God is good. He is gracious. He wants to hear the prayers that we pray to him. This parable is also not teaching that the privilege of prayer is for everyone. On the contrary, the privilege of prayer is only for God's children. It's only for those who are truly born again. 
only those who are born again can honestly cry out to him other than the prayer of repentance, right? The prayer of salvation. I mean, I guess God could answer the prayer of the unrepentant if he wants to, but through the Bible, the idea is that we pray prayers that are in accordance with God's will. And as we pray prayers that in accordance with God's will, that he answers those of his children. And that's what Jesus is getting to when he says, will God not give justice to who? What does it say in verse 7? Will God not give justice to his elect? So the idea here is that, that Jesus is saying, look, God will answer prayers, but it's the prayers of Christians. It's the prayers of those who call out to God as Abba, Father. He answers the prayers of those who know him, which means if you're here this morning and you don't know God, you can't just throw out a random prayer demanding God is going to answer your prayer like a genie in a bottle, and if he doesn't do that, you won't believe. That's not how prayer works. The idea is that you must bend the knee, repent of your sins, invite Christ to save you, and then you can call out to him as Abba, Father, and then as his adopted son or daughter, he's happy to hear your prayer. So the first prayer you really ought to pray to God is, God, save me. God, I'm broken. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm a sinner. I'm addicted to to my sin. I need your help. Would you save me? God hears that prayer. But as an unbeliever, you can't just walk around and say, well, I'm going to pray for this, pray for that. No, God, God, you're at enmity with him until you repent and pray. This parable is also not teaching that we can pray for anything we want. Even as Christians, as those of us who are children of God, you can't just pray for whatever you want. God answers those prayers that are in alignment with his will. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, I know there's some passages that just say, if you have enough, you know, if you ask for whatever you want, but I think that the whole Bible says, yeah, it's understood. Those passages are also in connection with this passage if we ask anything according to his will that he answers us. Another thing this parable is not teaching is that God primarily answers our prayers because he's tired of us nagging. That wouldn't be correct either. If you think, well, you know, if I nag enough, he's going to answer it because I'm a nagger. That's the whole point of, of the parable. No, no amount of sincere prayer is nagging to God. And furthermore, you're not going to wear him out. He will not become weary. He does not feel as you may feel when your child keeps nagging you and you get frustrated and finally just give your kid their request. Instead, God welcomes and even commands us to pray without ceasing. That's what God wants. He, he delights in it. So when we come to him and we keep praying and keep praying and keep praying, he's delighting in in every prayer, in every request. And so it's abundantly clear that we are to pray at all times and our prayers are are never bothering God. He delights in them. The judge in this parable is unloving, evil, ungracious, merciless, and unjust. But God is loving, good, gracious, merciful, and just. And moreover, what, what God is, he is infinitely he is infinitely loving and infinitely gracious and infinitely merciful and just. And so we know that God will not let his chosen ones down. So in this parable, the woman was an insignificant widow. But as a Christian, you are part of God's elect, his chosen ones, created in his image, redeemed by his son. God has set his love upon you and he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, this woman approached the judge as an unknown. You approach God as someone who is selected by sovereign grace before the foundation of the world, one that he knows every number of hairs on your head. He knows your situation. He knows your request. 
before you even pray it. Not only that, not only you're adopted son or daughter of Father, our Father God, you're betrothed to the Son of God, right? We're the bride of Christ. So we have this relationship that we're part of the family. And if we're part of the family, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, how much more? Verse 7 is saying, how much more? If, if, if God, will, will he not give justice to the elect who come to him day and night? He, he will not delay long over them. And so the second point of the parable would be this. Your next and last blank maybe here is that God will give justice to his children in his time. In the meantime, you remain faithful. And what he's saying here, and let me just try to summarize it if I can. In verse 8, he's saying, Look, I'll answer your prayer. The, the, the question at the end of verse 7 is, will he delay long over them? Because our temptation in our human nature is like, well, God's delaying a long time over my prayer. He's not answering my prayer. And so we begin to get frustrated. But Jesus says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So we have a contrast here. Why, why, why do we feel like God delays, and yet the parable says he's going to give justice speedily? Right? The answer to that is simply this, it's at the second coming. At the end, all things will be made right. At the end, when the final answer to the final prayer is given, it'll happen like this. In the meantime, you might pray and pray and pray and pray for a loved one, for someone to come to Christ, for healing of a certain infirmity, for rescuing out of a certain situation, uh, to not be killed as a martyr in the faith if you are being a missionary in that part of the world. You might pray and pray and pray, and God may not answer those prayers. But in the end, justice will be served because we serve a great God, and we serve a God who's over all. And so the idea here is don't give up. He does answer speedily when the Son of Man comes, when he comes back. And so the idea still is he could come back at any moment. He could come back to kick off those end-time events through rapture, tribulation, second coming. And many times I think we should see that as one package because none of us can be with certainty the exact order, though I labored to give you a little bit of an order of eschatology at the beginning of the sermon. The idea is when you start to see that stuff about Christ coming back, you, you should you should just think of it practically as one package. Christ is coming back. In the meantime, I need to be faithful in prayer. I need to know that God can answer prayer in a moment. And instead of being discouraged, let me read the parable like this and say, look, God says that he's going to answer it speedily. And so really the question is, the very last part of verse 8 is, when he comes, is he going to find faith on the earth? Or are you going to give up on God? When he comes, will he find faith? At the very end, it's almost like a rebuke. Where, where Jesus is saying, look, you better be faithful because when he does come, you don't want to be found as one who gave up too early, who gave up too soon, which would really be marking you as a non-believer instead of a believer. Because if you're a true believer, your faith is never going to give up. Your faith is never going to run out. You're not going to have to go and get more oil in your oil lamp and then Christ comes and you miss out on the wedding. That doesn't happen to the true believers. And so it's really at the end here a warning and an encouragement to say, hey, when God comes... Are you still going to be found faithful? And the understanding here for every Christian should be, yes. Yes, he will find faithfulness on earth. He will find, when he comes back, he will find faithful Christians continuing steadfastly in prayer, and, and they, they will be living a God-exalting, Christ-centered, spirit-filled life of persistent prayer. Here's how J.C. Ryle writes in his commentary on this passage. He, he writes this, quote, do we ever feel a secret inclination to hurry 
our prayers or shorten our prayers or become careless about our prayers or to omit our prayers altogether. Let us be sure when we do, that is a direct temptation from the devil. He is trying to sap and undermine the very citadel of our souls and to cast us down to hell. Let, as, uh, let us resist the temptation and cast it behind our backs. Let us resolve to pray on steadily, patiently, and perseveringly. Let us never doubt that he does us good. However long the answer may be in coming, let us pray on. Whatever sacrifice and self-denial it may cost us, still let us pray on. Pray always, pray without ceasing, and continue in prayer. Let us arm our minds with this parable, and while we live, whatever we make time for, let us make time for prayer. Amen? Well, the last couple of questions here just simply say this. How do you keep from growing weary in prayer? How do you keep from growing weary in prayer, I'd say come to Luke 18. How do you keep from becoming weary? Be reminded that Christ could come back at any moment, at any time, and in the meantime, we're to be praying urgently and consistently. Soak your heart in Scripture as the promise that God gives that you pray faithfully in accordance to His will. He'll answer it in His time. Number two, can you be described as someone who keeps coming to God in prayer? Can you be described as a, as a strong boxer a heavyweight champion that you keep coming and you keep coming with those requests because you trust God. You have faithful endurance to keep coming to God in prayer. Would that be how God would describe you? Lastly, are you blessed by the fact that God is a righteous judge who hears your prayers? If nothing else, hopefully from this parable, you can be like, man, at least I have a God in heaven who's righteous and just and longs to hear my request and justice will be served. If you're a Christian today, no matter what happens in this earth, you know that you have the ultimate judge, God, who knows your situation, who pleads your cause through Christ as a Christian and in life, that his glory would be uh, glorified, his, you know, God would be glorified in your life, and that you would be growing in your time of waiting as you remain persistent in prayer. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at this persistent widow and this idea of prayer. We're quick to confess, Lord, that we all struggle sometimes with our consistency in prayer. I'll be the first to confess, God, that there are times I, I just run out of steam and I'm doing it on my own. And I'm thinking of it from a human point of view instead of uh, meditating on the principles of this parable. And so I pray, God, as a church, that we would never stop praying that we would never give up praying for, for our missionaries, praying for this building to be renovated in your time and your way, praying for spiritual vigor and life in the, in, the, in, the, in the pulse of our church, praying that you would save the lost here in our community, praying that you would change us and help us to be more faithful in our serving and our giving out of our passion for Christ. God, we, we want to be a church that prays. We want to be a church that perseveres. We want to be a church that taps into the power of God provided for us in prayer. Would you make us that way for your glory? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.